0: Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 56. Glad to have you back on the program. And uh, this is the uh, first week I've been able to do two podcasts in one week, so. Hopefully, uh, for, in a long time. So hopefully, we'll continue this uh, trend as we move forward into February. I'm looking forward to doing this more often, and um, there's so many things to talk about. Um, it's hard not to want to get on here twice a week. So if you like this podcast, please make sure you share it around. Uh, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, follow my YouTube page. I do put these podcasts on YouTube, so um, please spread the word. It's the only way that uh, this podcast would continue to grow and reach a new audience I do my best, but uh, the best uh, advertisement I can have is from uh, loyal listeners. So if you, if you do like it, uh, please do me a, a real favor and um, share this thing around. So what I wanted to talk about today is uh, uh, something that was in the news I saw late last night uh, as I was uh, thinking about show prep and what I was going to talk about today. But it was a headline that uh, Trump said that uh, he'll send in the troops if Mexico doesn't take care of its bad hombres. And so I got to thinking, you know, first of all, uh, this is indicative of the imperial presidency. Uh, When you look at what's happened uh, throughout, particularly the 20th century, this is no different from what other presidents have done, uh, where we'll just send in the troops if there's a problem, uh, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. And that goes all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt's Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which was a perversion of the uh, Monroe Doctrine, without a doubt. But I thought, you know, a lot of people don't understand maybe the relationship between Mexico and the United States and the history behind that relationship. Uh, it's not uh, something that um, you get in your traditional history class. Most people don't understand the history of Mexico and and uh, this very strained relationship. Um, it has not been a very good relationship through... Uh, Basically, from the beginning, when Mexico gained its independence from Spain, you had uh, already had tensions there. So I thought it would be fun to go through some of the things that have happened in Mexican history and explain, perhaps, why we have this uh, this uneasy uh, political situation and diplomatic situation with Mexico. And um, you know, and, and of course, this uh, spills over into our. Uh, economic situation, and how much uh, business we do with Mexico, and uh, we're talking about immigration, which was the podcast I did just on Tuesday. So let's talk a little bit about Mexican history, and I did one of these on Cuba, and tried to explain why uh, Cuba uh, has a strained relationship with the United States, but the same thing goes with Mexico. So all this goes back to when Moses and Stephen Austin uh, attempted to settle Americans in in, uh, Texas, back in the 1820s. And so uh, at first this was an arrangement that Moses Austin, who had had uh, had with Spain, and of course Moses Austin was originally from Connecticut, and then he went to Virginia and he started some businesses there, and those failed. Then he went on to Missouri. Uh, And of course at the time that he moved into Missouri, that was a Spanish possession. So he actually uh, declared his uh, allegiance to Spain. Uh, He was given some land there. And of course then when uh, the United States acquired Missouri through the Louisiana Purchase, Uh, he, uh, stayed in Missouri and actually, uh, you know, established a bank, which, uh, when in the panic of 1819 went belly up. And so he's back looking for something to do and he gets, uh, permission from Spain again to settle in Texas. And so he's going to take 300 families into Texas Well, he dies. He uh, actually gets pneumonia and dies. And so on his deathbed, he pleads with his son, Stephen Austin. He had two sons, pleads with his son, Stephen Austin, to uh, bring these families into Texas, and so Austin agrees, Stephen Austin agrees, and takes 300 families into Texas. This is called the uh, the old 300 families of Texas. And um, over time, uh, this is in the 1820s again, over time, Austin gets permission to bring uh, more families into Texas. He's empresario of Texas, and that's what his uh, title is. And of course, in this time, even before uh, Austin gets into Texas, Mexico gains its independence, and Mexico actually has a federative political system, um, and so there's a, there's a push by Austin to make Texas a state in Mexico uh, rather than just a territory or a province. And so he wants it to become an official political state, but they don't have enough people. Uh, you know, according to, uh, to Mexican uh, law, it takes 80,000 residents to make a, um, a state, and they only have about 30,000 people. This is in the 1830s. And so uh, Austin actually goes down to, uh, to Mexico City to plead his case, and he's arrested because at this time there is a growing Texas independence movement, and people in the uh, Mexican government believe that Austin was probably behind this. Well, he wasn't. In fact, Austin was trying to argue against independence at this point. But he's arrested, and uh, he suffers uh, physical uh, problems because of that for the rest of his life, his very short life, in fact, uh, because while he's trying to get back to Texas— um, Texas declares independence, and um, Austin thinks he's going to be elected president, shoe in uh, to be elected president, but that doesn't happen. And uh, so he's made Secretary of State, and at that point he dies. But uh, this begins a very strained relationship between the United States and, and Mexico. Because, of course, Texas wins in its independence. It then becomes an independent republic for nine years, and then in 1845, uh, the United States will annex Texas during the John Tyler administration. And, uh, of course, um, this is the one area where you might say that John Tyler was uh, going beyond the bounds of the Constitution. And I talk about this in My Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America because I said John Tyler, and I do say still to this day, John Tyler was the best president in American history. So, uh, But Texas is acquired through a joint resolution of Congress, and so now it becomes part of the United States. But the real problem with Mexico is that uh, Texas was declaring a border that uh, Mexico did not recognize and um, the, uh, the border that uh, Texas said was the or the United States now said that was the border between Texas and Mexico was the Rio Grande River. But uh, Mexico is saying no, 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 it's the Nueces River. And so um, th- that issue actually goes back to the Adams-O'Neill Treaty of 1819 and in that particular treaty John Quincy Adams had given up American claims to Texas and uh, had actually said, you know, the border between Texas and Spain would be the Nueces River. So uh, this is problematic because you've got one group, Texans or Texians, as they like to be called, now saying the border is the Rio Grande and the United States now is going to back up that claim. But uh, Mexico has uh, this uh, treaty, this Adams and East Treaty with Spain, saying, no, 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 it's the way, the Nueces River. Um, the, of course, the uh, United States is saying, well, that was a treaty with, with Spain. That, that doesn't apply to Mexico now. Uh, you know, when, when you gained your independence in 1822, uh, you no longer that treaty was no longer in force. Uh, that was a treaty with a country that doesn't own Texas. So we're going with the Rio Grande. So this created a lot of tension. As you might imagine, you've got one uh, power saying that, uh, one, one state saying, no, this is uh, the, the borders and the oasis. You've got the United States and the state of Texas uh, saying, no, no, it's the Rio Grande. So this creates a tremendous amount of tension. Of course, also 1845 is important because just the uh, just a few months before that, you had the 1844 presidential election. And the man who was elected president at that time, James K. Polk of Tennessee, promised that uh, he was going to he was going to get Texas, that was one of his campaign pledges. We're going to get Texas, and I'm going to take all of Oregon. And um, of course, when you start saying these things, all the Oregon question was something separate. But by saying we're going to we're going to get Texas, uh, that does create a potential diplomatic situation with Mexico. So before he even becomes president, Texas is uh, is annexed into the United States. But um, he was going to honor that Rio Grande border. Now, the real thing that uh, Polk wanted wasn't just Texas, and he didn't say this in his campaign speeches, uh, but behind the scenes, what Polk really wanted to do was acquire California. Because California was, in his mind, the gateway to the Pacific. It had uh, deep water ports, uh, and James K. Polk wanted uh, the ability for the United States to be able to trade into the Pacific, and you couldn't really do it very well unless you had Pacific ports. So there was actually a very good book written about this in the 1950s by Norman Graebner entitled Empire on the Pacific. And it's, it's amazing to me. You know, you, you had in the 50s and 60s um, a real resurgence in American diplomatic history. And Frederick Merck was writing about manifest destiny in the Mexican War. Uh, you know, David Pletcher wrote uh, uh, a very uh, a great book on American diplomacy in this period entitled Diplomacy of Annexation. And I think uh, it's unfortunate the way the historic profession has gone. You know, diplomatic history is not very sexy anymore. Uh, Now we want to talk about race, class, and gender all the time. But, uh, you know, in the heyday of the 50s and 60s, people were writing about diplomatic history, and it's good stuff. Uh, You know, Pletcher's book came out in the early 70s. And uh, when I was at uh, Salisbury, Maryland, there uh, studying as an undergraduate, uh, one of my professors um, study with Pletcher. Uh, that was his. That was his uh, advisor, and um, so I got very interested in diplomatic history at that point. And uh, it's a, it's a great field, uh, but it's a traditional history field, and um, you just don't have many people doing it anymore. Because, and even when they do it, there's actually a little book out on pretty, uh, kind of on this topic uh, uh, by a guy named Matthew Carp. He he uh, teaches at Princeton, and um, he's a Eric Foner Jr. is what I call him because he's a, he's a devout Marxist, open Marxist. He's um, very critical of uh, capitalism and free markets, and uh, of course everything to him is race, class, gender. And so he did write this book recently on uh, American foreign policy in the 1840s and 50s, and it's all about, you might guess, slavery. So uh, it's, it's still race, class, gender when it comes to uh, American foreign policy. So I digress. It's, uh, this is a great topic, but what Polk wanted to do was get California, and he was willing to do it in, in a variety of ways. Uh, in fact, he first tried to send in a diplomat named John Slidell. John Slidell of Louisiana was much more famous for the Trent Affair, which took place during the uh, war between the states or, uh, in the 1860s, where he was taken off the HMS Trent by the United States Navy and uh, imprisoned. And so this was... Um, this is a diplomatic crisis for the United States because uh, you have an American ship uh, stopping a British ship and saying, "No, no, no! These guys, uh, these two uh, uh, people on your ship, these two Americans, Slidell and Mason, well, they are uh, they're they're uh, traitors to the United States, and we're going to take them off and we're going to uh, to arrest them." Uh, well, that creates a diplomatic incident because this wasn't a Confederate ship; this was a British ship. So Slidell was more famous for that. But here in the 1840s, he sent. To Mexico by James K. Polk under a secret mission to try to acquire California, and he was authorized to spend a tremendous amount of money just to get California. Uh, forget about the rest of it. He said, "Look, just just buy it. We'll we'll buy California." Perhaps though, Mexico is having some political problems, and if you go back and look at uh, you know Mexican political history, my gosh, they have a new president like every five minutes in this period of time. They're they're, they're continually flipping these presidents and. Uh, this is causing all kinds of problems internally. Uh, there's instability all over the place, and they're broke most of the time. So Polk is under the assumption that, hey, look, if we offer them a, a big chunk of chains here, they'll just sell uh, California. And he had gotten some assurances uh, through diplomatic channels that this might happen. Well, when Slidell shows up in Mexico, the new government refuses to meet with him. They had switched; uh, The president switched again, and so they say, no, 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 we're not going to meet with you. Uh, that was the old regime which will probably be back in power. In fact, if you look at it, it was kind of the same presidents over and over again, just flip, flip-flopping back and forth. So uh, Slidell comes home, and he says, hey, they're, they're not going to talk with us. So now Polk has no option but, in his mind, to go take it from, from uh, Mexico, and so that's essentially what he's going to do. So what he does is take uh, the United States Army, uh, at this point commanded by Zachary Taylor, in the region, and he says, Taylor, go to the Rio Grande, and set up your soldiers on the Texas side of the Rio Grande. And so Taylor does it. Polk knows exactly what he's doing. He's instigating because Mexico is going to claim that territory as their own, so they're going to look at this as an invasion. So Polk, quote-unquote, sends in the troops, uh, sends in the army to take care of uh, of these bad hombres down there in Mexico. So this is, this is a very uh, Polk-esque statement that Trump was making. And of course, I'm no. Uh, now, when I was younger, and uh, you know, in, in much um, had a much different perspective on American history. I thought that Polk was, uh, you know, this is great. Americans going to go out there, we're going to make America great, right? And we're going to go get this, uh, go get this territory. Um, in fact, I, when I was an undergraduate, I wrote a, a paper um, on on Polk, and I and Polk has some things. There's some there's some things about Polk that I find interesting. But um, I wrote this paper embarrassingly. Now, I wrote this paper explaining how. Polk wasn't acting in an aggressive or belligerent way here, and this is—I uh, was defending Polk, um, but uh, as I've as I've gotten older, and went to graduate school, and studied uh, studied more, uh, particularly about executive power, and uh, I've I came to the realization: my gosh, that was a stupid position that I took. But young people make stupid decisions and write stupid papers, and that was one of mine. So uh, Taylor gets on the other side, and of course, Mexico attacks, and um, Polk jumps at this opportunity. He goes to Congress in uh, June of 1846, and says, hey, American blood has been shed on American soil. We've got to go to war with Mexico, and Congress obliges. Now, take that statement for what it is. American blood has been shed, that was true, on American soil, which was disputed. So this is really the first instance in American history of a president instigating a war uh, and then telling a falsehood to Congress. And so we had this with the—and uh, I, I talk about this in Learn True History at, there uh, when I do the lecture— on Vietnam, but I talk about this. This is the Gulf of Tonkin incident. This is um, this is the weapons of mass destruction for the Bush administration. Uh, there was some truth to every one of these things, uh, but in in every case, uh, perhaps the tr- tr- truth was stretched just a little bit to get the United States Congress to act. And in this case, the United States Congress will declare war on Mexico. And of course, to make a long story short, the United States wins that particular war, um, and. Um, Almost, I mean, it, it's a it's a slaughter. But at the beginning of the war, what's really interesting about this is that the Mexican people and even some people in the United States thought this was going to be a disaster for the United States. This is 1846. We hadn't fought a war since 1812, so it'd been over 30 years. The United States didn't hadn't really ever been battle tested. We're invading a foreign country that has a large population. We got to cross a long stretch of territory to get there. Uh, and of course, we're in a tropical environment. A lot of most of the casualties for the United States Army will be from disease, uh, and it's not quite certain how this is going to work out. Uh, Mexico felt pretty good about itself; uh, it didn't think it was just going to get steamrolled. Of course, that basically happened, but um, it wasn't quite certain at first that the United States was going to do as well as they did in this war. It, it, and there were people against it. You know, John C. Calhoun for example, made several speeches against the war, thinking that uh, Polk had overstepped his power. Uh, This is the the thing that, uh, in that book by Carp I mentioned, he he goes over this, and uh, he basically says Calhoun is being disingenuous because he's making these speeches, but behind the scene he's voting for everything. Uh, Actually, what he really wanted to do was expand slavery, and uh, so uh, Calhoun was being uh, two-faced here. He's writing to his son, his son-in-law, Clemson, saying that uh, you know well i'm i'm doing a good job here i'm i'm really uh, you know i'm i'm standing up to the polk administration but he's voting for everything because calhoun was interested in slavery and so i mean that's the that's the typical thing you know but calhoun was making speeches against the war he realized what was happening that the executive branch was ex- was extending its authority unconstitutionally and this is going to be a disaster in the future and he was perfectly right about that so um We we got one thing that's interesting about this. You know, we have this current push for California secession. Well, actually, at this point, California had declared its independence, Uh, and um, there was uh, the the United States Army moved in to California, and John Charles Fremont was there. And of course, Fremont becomes a little more famous uh, in the eighteen fifties as the first Republican candidate for president. And then, of course, during the war, he's he's a general, and he issues issues Field Order Number Fifteen, which creates the forty acres and a mule myth. Uh, in in running around the United States, but uh, at this point uh, there is some talk about Fremont. He, he refuses to follow orders, and that Fremont maybe behind the scenes wanted to be the president of this new Republic of California. So California actually has its independence, and then it's later coerced by the United States. To, you know, it can't do that. So this is what we really wanted. You can't declare your independence. Polk wanted in California, so we're going to keep that. But of course, in this time period, uh, you know Ta- Zachary Taylor's eventually sacked as a uh, general officer. Um, uh, command of U.S. soldiers there, and so Winfield Scott is put in charge. And Winfield Scott, and both Taylor and Scott were from Virginia originally, and uh, they're both Whigs, though, and, of course, Polk's a Democrat, so he didn't trust either of them. Uh, but Winfield Scott uh, is a, one of the greatest generals, so is Zachary Taylor, really, one, one of the greatest generals in American history, um, and his men loved him. You know, of course, um, Winfield Scott thought very highly of Robert E. Lee, uh, Winfield Scott thought verily highly of, of Stonewall Jackson, and in so many, of course, Jackson wasn't called Stonewall at that point. He was Old Jack or Tom Fool. But uh, the um, the interesting thing about it is that um, you know Scott uh, was so loved by his men, and uh, you know this was a uh, in terms of military success, it was a rousing military success. Um, Scott launched the first uh, uh, you know amphibious assault really in American history, and the largest one to that point at Veracruz. And um, probably, actually, maybe even in world history you know, at Veracruz there. Uh, and uh, he takes Mexico City. So at that point, there is a faction of the United States um, government that wants to just take all of Mexico, just take the whole darn thing, and we'll make it part of the United States. Fortunately, that uh, didn't pan out, uh, but we do acquire uh, California, and also, what's called the Mexican Cession, which includes the states of, uh, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, we get a huge chunk of territory out of this. And uh, Polk's going to buy it, uh, because we're nice guys. Fifteen million bucks, right? We're going to get all this territory. Uh, sorry for your, uh, sorry for your troubles. Here's fifteen million dollars, and oh yeah, we'll settle the claims between you and Texas. That's three and a half million. So we get all that territory for about eighteen and a half million dollars. Uh, and, of course, Polk before this was willing to pay up, upwards of $30 million just for California. So this is a bargain for in Polk's mind, of course. And, again, because we're nice guys, uh, we're going to just uh, you know pay for this territory. We're not just going to steal it from you, and uh, it's now ours. Now, this doesn't fill out the rest of the Southwest. That comes a little later in 1853 with the Gadsden Purchase, where uh, Jefferson Davis, as Secretary of War, is able to persuade uh, Franklin Pierce that we need a Southern Transcontinental Railroad, and so we go out and purchase what's called the Gadsden Purchase, for about the same amount of money that we paid for the entire Mexican session. So we fill out our, uh, our North American continent uh, in the southern part of it with the Gadsden Purchase and the Mexican session. Now, that was the 1850s, and of course Mexico still continues to be unstable over and over again. And in fact, in the 1860s, there's actually something called uh, the, uh, the War of Re- or Wars of Reform, I should say, and uh, this is creating a tremendous amount of instability and then the conservatives in Mexico during these wars of reform will invite in the French and so for a period of time the French have uh, set up uh, a a monarchy in in Mexico and uh, they set up an emperor Emperor Maximilian and he's a Habsburg Um, and so you've got uh, this uh, European occupation of of, uh, Mexico and uh, a lot of people in the United States considered this to be very dangerous. In fact, there was a rumor that the Hampton Roads Conference in 1865, which uh, was kind of a, a peace conference between the United States and the Confederate States, that they were going to drop the drop their differences and go and try to take out this uh, European regime in Mexico. Now, um, I don't think there's anything, uh, nothing was going to happen with that. But there was, um, there was some talk about uh, how dangerous having this uh, monarchy on our back door would be uh, for the United States in the future. And, of course, eventually uh, there's a rebellion against uh, Maximilian. He's executed, and uh, that leads to the Porfirio Diaz regime. And um, Diaz was in power in in, uh, in Mexico for a long period of time, actually into the 20th century. So this guy was president, I think, seven or eight times, and um, he was uh, essentially a military dictator. Uh, and he suppressed civil liberties. Um, he was uh, very rough on people who oppose his regime. And essentially, what Mexico gets from this point forward, uh, for a time, are strongmen, military strongmen. And this is this is um, and it, this is uh, you know quite common in Latin America. Uh, you get these military strongmen, no different than Maximilian. Uh, but Diaz claimed to be a reformer. He's not. Uh, he's not a conservative. He's a reformer. And so Mexico definitely tilts left. Uh, in its history and um, what you find is that generally most of the presidents who have been in charge of Mexico are uh, or you know, leading Mexico are leftists and so eventually uh, uh, Diaz is forced to re- to abdicate in the early 20th century uh, and but at, during this time America gets very cozy with Diaz in fact uh, President Taft uh, pledges his support to Diaz and in this particular period uh, there was going to be heavy American investment in oil fields in northern Mexico. And, of course, um, Mexicans realize this. And when there is a, a revolution that begins in the, in the early 20th century, uh, this is actually the first real communist revolution in the Western world, uh, this revolution in Mexico. Uh, these Americans are booted out. And so uh, President Woodrow Wilson now is in, is, is in office. And he's going to send in the army. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, here we go, here's Donald Trump, I'm going to send in the army. Well, Woodrow Wilson sends in the army. We have American business interests that are being threatened by by this Mexican revolution. And um, the man who was booted out of power at this point, his name was Madero. And uh, the uh, the coalition that um, was working against him, the two of the leaders of that coalition were Emilio Zapata, and uh, Pancho Villa. In fact, Pancho Villa is going to raid into New Mexico. And so the reprisal is going to come from the United States Army. Uh, you know, uh, Blackjack Pershing uh, is involved in this. He's going to chase Pancho Villa. And uh, uh, George Patton actually makes a name for himself. This is according to, to uh, history, to lore. This is the first mechanized uh, infantry assault in American history because Patton rides into Mexico on the side of a Dodge car and he's, he's r- hanging off the sideboard shooting at Mexicans as he's riding into Mexico to go get Pancho Villa. And um, so this is um, this creates some tension between Mexico and the United States. And the army uh, is sent in essentially to go and try to take care of this problem. We've got these commies out there taking our oil fields and um, we got these these. Bad hombres here in, in, uh, in Mexico that need to be taken care of. So this civil war uh, is, uh, is uh, definitely part of American foreign policy at this point. We've picked sides. In fact, one of the leaders of the civil war, a man named Carranza, gets the United States funding. We send in uh, weapons and money, and so we're propping up a, uh, a Mexican thug. And that's essentially the way it works from this point forward. The United States is going to choose sides and all of this instability – Mexico is, be, is going to become extremely unstable uh, in this particular period of time, and uh, over and over again, there's there's back and forth. The United States is involved uh, diplomatically. We're, we're picking sides. We're sending funding. We're doing things to, in so many ways, keep, keep the instability alive. Uh, I, I don't think that that was the goal, but it's what it does, uh, and so uh, Mexico is going to suffer. It has a poor uh, political system, has a poor economy basically because the Mexicans become socialist. and uh, this takes this is the this, the uh, way that Mexico does business all the way up into the into the modern era. Um, you don't really have a uh, a stable Mexico uh, up until essentially uh, you know, maybe into the 1990s, but even to this day, you still have instability in the northern states of Mexico. Uh, you have, uh, in this federal system, you have virtual autonomy for the northern states. They, uh, they do what they want, and the Mexican government is, is almost powerless to stop them. Uh, and so that is part of the, of the problem. And enter the 1990s, and uh, the George H.W. Bush administration and the Bill Clinton administration, and you have NAFTA. Now, NAFTA is often misunderstood as a free trade agreement. In fact, um, you have people like Murray Rothbard very critical of of NAFTA because it wasn't really free trade. It was a a, a system whereas whereas the uh, political elite, the establishment in both areas, both regions, would make a heck of a lot of money at the expense of uh, American jobs, and so it wasn't really fee- free trade. It was a crony free tradism where uh, you would have you know certain winners and losers in this particular process. And uh, this is why, uh, you know, Rothbard uh, was very critical of it in the 90s because it wasn't a libertarian free trade type system. Uh, the government was still going to be heavily involved and they were going to pick winners and losers. And they did. And so uh, what you had was, you know, American companies going in and setting up shop on the on the border of the of the United States in Mexico. And uh, the uh, the Mexican government liked this, because, of course, it's going to relieve them of some of the problems. We're basically funding the Mexican economy at this point. Uh, and again, winners and losers are being chosen, and uh, the losers, of course, ultimately were American workers, uh, and um, the winners were Mexican workers. And that was part of the, of the issue, too. We wanted to keep, uh, you know, Mexican workers in Mexico. So uh, NAFTA is uh, established, and of course, this uh, this creates a, a climate, whereas, you know, a lot of um, Americans uh, don't particularly like the situation. A lot of uh, blue-collar workers are out of work. And so that creates a strained relationship with Mexico and, and, and the vision, the impression that Americans have of Mexico. And then uh, take into account, as we just talked about, immigration. You have uh, Mexico as a conduit, not just for uh, Mexican citizens coming into the United States, but also other Central American citizens. And so you create this very strained relationship with our border. Uh, and our economic interaction between Mexico is quite extensive uh, because of NAFTA and other things. But we trade a lot with Mexico so you have this long, long history between Mexico and the United States, but the key to it always is, and Trump, I mean, I, I circle back to this idea of Trump saying he's going to send in the troops. The relationship, particularly in the 20th century, has been um, a, a, uh, an adversarial relationship in so many ways with the American government to Mexico, uh, an imperialistic relationship. Uh, we have just thrown them, uh, used the stick more often than not, in dealing with Mexico, uh, and that's created its own problems. Uh, so you can't uh, you can't get around the fact, and you deal you look at this with all kinds of issues with Central America. You can't get around the fact that the United States has been very aggressive in Central America and has created its own blowback, its own problems when dealing with these governments. You find that all over the Caribbean and into South America and Central America, we have created messes. And I think uh, you look at that in the Middle East too. Uh, and uh, Stephen Kizer's books. On uh, on this uh, particular topic, you know, overthrow was just excellent, uh, and so I recommend that. But uh, you look at American foreign policy, and uh, we make our own bed. We've made our own bed in Mexico. We've created some of the situations there. Uh, some of the instability is by on on their own fault. I mean, some of that had to do with uh, how they were handling things. But the United States has been funding various sides, uh, and. Uh, that has created some issues here between uh, Mexico and the United States, and of course, it goes all the way back to uh, to James K. Polk. So, I thought it'd be valuable for people who are who are thinking about this issue of Mexico to understand where the tension comes from. In fact, um, you know, all the people moving into uh, to the uh, American Southwest, all the uh, Mexican citizens moving in there, they actually call this the Reconquista in Mexico. Uh, when I was in uh, graduate school, I uh, I uh, was a teaching assistant for um, the uh, the uh, Latin American historian there, and um, I, I think Latin American history is very very interesting, and um, he uh, he he told me this he went to Mexico quite a bit and he said you know people in Mexico call this the Reconquista, uh, they're just going to take the land back they're not going to do it by force they're just going to live in it and it's going to become Mexico again and I think you're actually seeing that so. Uh, when you get into self determination and other things, you know we, we talked about talk about California secession and how that should happen, uh, and uh, you look at uh, what's going on out in the Southwest. Uh, this is part of the issue. Uh, that land was uh, Spanish and Mexican land to begin with. We took it by force, and and so uh, you're you're reaping what you sow in so many ways. So uh, this is a very interesting topic, and I think one that um, is uh, you know and I, I know people are not going to be happy about that what I just said about uh, the Southwest, but, um, you know, this is what's going on. It's, it's my job just to say, look, this is historical precedent behind it. This is what's happening, and uh, so we need to understand these things as we look forward and we start talking about foreign policy and domestic policy and all these other things, uh, that there is a historical uh, basis for all of these things. All right, so I hope you enjoyed this uh, discussion on Mexico, and uh, again, I've been trying to do these things twice a week from here on out, so I will see you next time on The Brian McLean Show.